I wanted to keep on singing or listen to them sing some more. But I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And as you stand, a, a, a reminder from what we read earlier from John's Gospel, uh, when, when had his son been made well? When he believed what God said. Your life will be made well when you believe what God says. So I want to preface reading what God says with, with that. So Jeremiah chapter 17. I'm going to begin in verse 5 and read through verse 10. It's actually the same passage from last week, but I believe there's more that we want to draw from here. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Let's pray together. Father, we're all, we're all trusting in something. We're all building our lives confidently somewhere, either on the basis of our own heart or we're trusting in you. One is cursed, one is blessed. One will not see any good come, the other will not cease to see good. One is like a shriveling shrub, the other is like a fruitful tree. One is the result of forsaking you. The other is the result of trusting you. And Father, we live in a deceptive world and we ourselves have deceptive hearts. And often what we're most deceived about is what we're actually trusting in. For many people say, I'm a fruitful tree when actually they're living life as a shriveling shrub. So give us grace to be good, to hear the word of the Lord and to trust in you more than we trust our own hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of course, you may be seated. Hey, in addition to Jeremiah 17, uh, if you'll be finding Matthew chapter 6, uh, that'll be really helpful for a little bit later on in the sermon. I, I took this uh, sermon title this morning straight from something from verse number uh, 8, Not Anxious. In the year of drought. That's the title of this morning's message. And begin with this uh, example from history. In the years following World War I, so we're talking roughly a hundred years ago, in the early 1920s, America entered a time of economic prosperity. And part of that prosperity led to technological developments in agriculture that really transformed the speed of which land could be cultivated. So farmers ex uh, conducted extensive deep plowing in the topsoil of the Great Plains area of our country and 
this is what actually happened. I think I've got a picture in time. Years of prosperity, but ultimately what we call the Dust Bowl, right? If you've ever read about that in history. And what had happened is the rapid progress interesting word, of farm equipment, especially small gasoline tractors and widespread use of the combine harvester contributed to farmers' decisions to convert a whole lot of grassland to cultivated cropland. And after initial record-breaking crop hauls throughout the 1920s, things took a turn. And when I say things took a turn, things take a massive turn. Do you know what came? Drought came. And, And with it, the previously overplowed land became dust. And the previously celebrated technological, methodological breakthroughs revealed themselves to actually be unwise decisions. 500,000 people left where they were living to look desperately for work and homes elsewhere. Now, uh, Year of drought, years of drought. We all understand physical droughts, right? I mean, we can see the pictures. But what the Bible is teaching us is, is there's also such a thing as a spiritual drought. When, when you look with me in verse 5, aren't you told again and again that this is how you should live life, to trust in yourself? I mean, when's the last time that you saw a movie, a television show, listened to a podcast that at the bottom of the message was essentially, you really need to believe in yourself, right? Or, what we hear all the time, follow your own what? Heart. Look at verse 9. The heart. Go in and personalize it. Put your name in it. Brandon's heart is deceitful above all things. So, if you follow your own heart, you're actually following the biggest liar that exists in your life. Deceitful above what? Deceitful about what life's about. Deceitful about what's important. Deceitful about purpose, meaning, identity. Jeremiah, remember, he prophesied for 40 years and in his generation, hardly anybody listened to him because just as it didn't really sync up with how pe- people felt in his generation, it still doesn't today to tell somebody you're cursed if you trust in your own strength. Jeremiah will say again and again, as he says in this passage, you cannot, you cannot live like there is no God and still receive the life-giving provisions of God, right? You cannot live as if there is no God and still receive from God the life-giving provisions of God. I think a couple of weeks ago we used the illustration of uh, identity theft, right? Some of you have dealt with that. and man, uh, Sometimes it's uh, rather harmless in a, in a way. Somebody gets, uh, you know, sends a message on Facebook as you, but it's not you. And most of your friends pick up that it's not you because it's usually a message that doesn't sound like you. Like, hi, how are you today? Well, that's not what they would have said, right? But other forms of identity theft can be devastating. It can take all sorts of 
phone calls and meetings to try to unspool all that's gotten twisted up. So if somebody stole your identity, took all of your money, and spent it on things that you never would, what would your response be to that? Would you say, ah, hey, that's the way the world goes, man. Or, or even more, if somebody tried to begin living as you. Like if somebody took my place and just said, hey, these are my children now. Would, would your response be, ah, those are the breaks. Or would you do whatever you needed to do to reclaim your identity? Here's the story of the Bible. We ripped God's identity off and said, we're going to be him, not him. That's the fall, friends. That's Genesis 3. Eat this fruit, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, you run the show for you. And so many people want to say, well, God should just get over that. I mean, if he's the creator, just get past it, move on. And, and God has responded in two ways. Number one, I'm not going to get over that. I will not share my glory with another. That's what he says throughout the Old Testament. And number two, and praise God, he's this kind of God. He's responded with mercy and compassion and kindness. And on the cross, he's displaying, this is my identity. This is who I am. Compassionate and gracious, but also holy, holy, holy. God will not let you forsake him and thrive. That's true society-wise, and that's true for your own life. Because there's no such thing as thriving in forsaking him. So a couple of points, we'll start with this one. The drought reveals where our roots are. You know, um, we talked about this last week a little bit, that we live in these interesting times that, again, essentially uh, reverses what verse 5 says. We live in a time that says uh, you'll be blessed if you trust in yourself, if you make your flesh your strength. We live in a time where morality is is, is not given, it's, it's chosen. Morality and really your life is decided by you and you alone. Uh, we, we call it the, the era of the self-sovereign. Nobody tells me what to do. So we live in a generation where self-fulfillment is portrayed as salvation, right? I mean, again and again, you're told to find your true and authentic self. According to Jeremiah 17, 9, if you find your true and authentic self, you find a deceptive, deceiving person. And not only do we say self-fulfillment today is portrayed as salvation, self-expression is our form of worship. I mean, it's important what we just did, y'all. We sang praises to the Lord. Your mercy is more. Jesus' name brings life. But you and I live in a generation, in a world that says self-expression is worship. And man, no generation has ever had more means to express self than our generation. And then third, if self-fulfillment is salvation and self-expression is worship, anyone who won't affirm your self-expression is persecuting. That's, that's the generation that we live in. And according to Jeremiah 17, verse 5, or verse 6, you won't see any good come. You'll dwell in a land of parched places, in an uninhabited salt land. But that's the story we keep telling ourselves. All of our films, all of our novels, all of our TV shows, all of our social media posts, they're, they're full of the message of self-fulfillment. That's where our roots are in, a, in our society. Now, 
when you're told uh, self-fulfillment is salvation, Alan Noble, in a book that's worth reading uh, called You Do Not Belong to Yourself, uh, says there's two ways that you respond to that. One is, is affirmation. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm with it. That message actually fires me up. And then you start to fill your life up with uh, your daily planner, your highly controlled regimen, your five-year plan, your personal assessment, and your action items. And busyness is the sign that you're doing life right. Everything is to be done at peak efficiency. Well, some people live that way. And another way of living in response to that message is resignation. Instead of affirmation, like, I'm going to get this done, resignation says, I'll never be able to, to do that. I'll never be able to get there, so I'll just drop out. And then instead of promoting self, you sort of resign the self. And you kind of drop out of life and begin to numb the self with substances or hours of entertainment or media or going to watch the TV show again, video games, or some other form of, of, of self-medication. But no matter if you respond with affirmation or resignation, the ultimate result is revealed in verse number 8. The person who trusts in the Lord is not anxious in the year of drought. Here's the interesting observation, and this doesn't come from exclusively people who love God's Word. This is coming across the board right now. Here's the interesting observation. In a generation where self-fulfillment is salvation, do you know what's widespread? Just about more than anything else, the common characteristic is anxiety. Anxiety. So the second point is anxiety is widespread during the drought. It turns out that living as if you're sovereign over yourself feels freeing at first, but ends up being exhausting. Whether you respond with affirmation, I'm going to get this done. But when are you done? If if yourself is your own self-improvement project, that project's never actually done, is it? Or resignation. Man, the world is, well, a parched place in the wilderness an uninhabited land. Well, anybody who's taken inventory of where we sit in 2022, again, reports the defining trait of our day is anxiety. We're going to talk about this more next Sunday. Our our young people report being anxious at unprecedented levels. No, No generation has been inundated with the false gospel of the sovereign self more than theirs, and none on record has ever reported being as anxious as them. Well, if you're in Matthew chapter 6, look in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, about your body, what you will put on. Is, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. In other words, life isn't just physical. There's a whole lot more to it than that. 
Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you being anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Hey, here's some good news. You ready for some good news? Here's my third point. Jesus cares about the anxious. Jesus really cares about the anxious. We're, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, right? If, if you've got a red-letter edition of the Bible, you'll see most of all of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's a pretty good portion of the Sermon on the Mount addressed to the issue of anxiety, right? I mean, we can see that together. And, and this isn't a lecture about anxiety. That's not what Jesus is doing. It's not a TED Talk with how to cope with anxiety. This is the maker of your soul telling us how we can really live. So who is telling us? Jesus is. Jesus is. The, the heart of God is for those who have forsaken him. It's amazing, isn't it? When, when we, Jeremiah 17, 5, turned away from him, and just so we're clear from the scripture, all of us have done that, right? All of us are born naturally inclined to trust in self. I know I've used this illustration before, but I was practicing this week. I know my daughter's only seven weeks old, but I was saying, dad, 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 say it. Say it. I didn't really, no, I didn't really do it like that. It's been true of all four of my children up to this point. Dada, mama, Jesus. We, we practice those words. We didn't spend a single solitary second ever saying, repeat after me, no, 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 no. But it was one of the first words any of them spoke. No. And we didn't spend one single, we didn't watch a TV program, Barney or whoever else, to ever say, repeat after me, my, my, mine. But I'll tell you what, they came gripping a toy, mine. Why? Because we're descended by God replacing Adam and Eve. That's our nature. Self-sovereign. Nobody tells me what to do. This life, this kingdom is mine. And Jesus responds to those who have forsaken him by being forsaken for them. It's amazing grace. It's what the cross is. He who knew no sin became sin took the penalty because, because telling God that he doesn't matter and that he's not wanted, that's what sin is, and it's not a small thing. 
People conceive of sin. I mean, the heart is deceitful above all things. And you know one of the first things it will deceive you about is the seriousness of your own sin. We think of it like a library fine, right? Ever turned in a, I get the email because I'm usually late. Quarter here, quarter there. And then, honestly, if you just wait long enough, they have these uh, forgiveness days. Just take the book back then and just wipe it clean, you know. I'll just wait for then. And that's how people think God should deal with sin. If you want to know how serious sin is, look at the cross. Because nothing less than that is means to be forgiven of your sin. And Jesus cares about the anxious. When you get um, honest about the gospel of the sovereign self, you'll see that it produces anxiety. But notice here in verse 25, let's be good students of the Bible together. Verse 25, Matthew 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So you've probably heard this before, but if you're going to be a good student of the Bible, when you see the word therefore, what's happening is you need to consider what's come before, right? So therefore, in another word of that, because of this, don't be anxious. Because of what? So, so what we can do, and really this is true for the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's all led up to this uh, application not to be anxious, but let's rewind the tape and go to verse number one of chapter six. In other words, you can start to read through Matthew six and find here are things that will lead you to anxiety. Restlessness of the soul. Verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You want to talk about contrasts. That's in direct contrast to what you're told every single day. Now, this doesn't just go for celebrities. It's dripped down to the whole culture that you have to build your brand. In other words, you've got to practice your righteousness in front of other people because what life's about is being seen by other people. And how do you know if you've ever been seen enough? How do you know if you've ever been affirmed enough? You never will. You know what that produces? Anxiety. Because again, if you believe the false gospel of the sovereign self, self-expression is worship. Now, I know that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's, he's mainly talking about the empty, dead legalism of the Pharisees here in Matthew 6. But whatever false gospel you believe, it comes with a corresponding false practicing of righteousness. And that's what's happened in our day. Righteousness for the sovereign self requires the affirmation of others. Isn't this, isn't this strange? But this is how it works. You are told that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks You live your truth, and then the very next second, you need everybody to affirm what you just said you don't need anybody's input about. Isn't that strange? Why why does that happen that way? Because that's the way you were made. Even if you reject the Creator, you can't get around how He has created you. You Contemporary people, we, we define, not we, but the world we live in, defines freedom as the absence of constraints. And that freedom must be practiced for others to see. Well, think about it this way. Alan Noble and 
I think I misquoted the title of the book earlier, You Are Not Your Own. He said it this way, the average preteen in America has the same basic tools for publicity that only the biggest Hollywood stars had 60 years ago. Where the paparazzi or celebrity gossip magazines used to publish every major life event in that star's life, Facebook and other social media allows every user to make the same announcements. Instead of being asked by a pesky reporter to share our opinion about a recent political story, we share articles online with our personal commentary. These tools for self-expression are only multiplying, providing new ways of sharing our thoughts, our feelings, our voice, our body, our interests, our values with the world. And every piece of information we share, we define and validate our identity. And that's it. You don't actually define your identity and no other person will actually ever validate your identity. Those things belong to God. You're made in His image. Look what He says. um, For then... If you're, if you're just always practicing righteousness in order to be seen by other people, right? It's not just social media, but social media, there is something about it that sort of emphasizes how prevalent it is. You've got to go back and see how many likes, how many retweets or re-whatever, you know. Then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And just so we understand Jesus keeps coming back to this point. Verse 2, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. So it's a great thing to do good for others, but I would tell you, you don't have to post it when you do. To be seen. Wow, there's a generous person. You know, you can give in such a way that you honor the person you're giving to. And, and, and oh, well, I'll save that for another day. But. but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Look at the end of verse 6. You can live in such a way that your father sees in secret will reward you. Will reward you. End of verse 18. And your father will reward you. What's the reward? Knowing Him. Knowing Him. The reward is what you're actually created for, to abide in Him. The results of that is joy and peace and life. You know, the world, social media, if that's what one pushes you to be a product on display, not a person made in His image. And keeping up that race causes Friends, anything we do that is against how we were created to live produces anxiety. 6-5, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Verse 7, when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. And Matthew 6-32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, just underscoring that Jesus is saying, Don't live like Jeremiah 17, 5, like those who don't believe in God, like those who have forsaken the Lord. Don't live like an unbeliever. And my last point this morning is Jesus is a trustworthy fountain in the drought. Let's um, maybe keep your spot there in Matthew 6, but go back with me to Jeremiah 17, 5. 
notice, verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart, so we're talking about the heart, not talking about the outward person, we're talking about the inward person, the heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert, shall not see any good come. Shrubs in the desert are fruitless, rootless, right? You like old westerns, the tumbleweed that just comes blown by the wind, right? And then in contrast, the person who trusts in the Lord, verse 9, is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So real quick. Here's, here's where I spent a lot of time in my life, and I just want to point it out so that maybe you don't repeat my mistake. I thought anxiety would be the condition of my soul when there was no drought. It's kind of what I thought. Is that what he says in Jeremiah 17? We, we start to think, I won't be anxious when, I mean, I, I mean, not to make this about me in any way, shape, or form, but I had some things happen in my life when I was a young man that, whew, there's a reason my hair turned gray early. I'll just say it that way, right? But anxious. I can remember laying in bed and saying, man, this is not, this is not really how I thought life was going to go. I had this mentality that if I loved God and trusted Him, it'd be smooth sailing, Right? But he doesn't say, he who trusts in the Lord, the heat will never come. He doesn't say that. And he also doesn't say, if you trust in the Lord, there'll never be any drought. He doesn't say that. What he does say is, when, if you underline in your Bible, when the heat comes, he doesn't live in fear. His leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. We'll talk about this more as the Sundays go on because I think it's an important for us to focus on in these Sunday mornings. And I'm going to say something that those of us who really wrestle with anxiety, it might make you feel even more anxious, but just hang with me, right? Why are you anxious, O oh, you of little faith, is actually what he says. Anxiety is a, is a result of unbelief. That's why Jesus says, you of little faith. Faith in what, though? Can we, can we talk about that? For, faith in what? Well, of course, faith in God. But specifically, faith in his, his care for you. You probably know this passage, but think about it. Cast all your anxieties on him for what? He cares for you. And some people get called in trusting in self on the basis of thinking that God won't really take care of them. I got to do it because he's not going to. Now, we, we need to be rescued. Well, let me put it this way. Back in Matthew 6, 1. You don't have to practice your righteousness in front of God in order for him to care for you. You know why? You ready for this? You don't have a bit in you to perform. And if you think you do, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
who can understand it. But, but we start to think that. Maybe God will love me if I give to the needy. Maybe that's why we blow the trumpet so loud. Or if I really learn how to pray in a spiritual way, right? I've got to learn certain phrases. And all, all that's what he's saying not to, to do. God's not waiting for us to practice righteousness for him to see us because we don't have any. You and I are always in our own self have a bent to be seen by others. On our own, we'll always be morally weak. We'll always be prayerless. And and even even when we muster the ability to pray, our prayers tend to be self-centered. That's why he has to say, you need to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You turn from confidence in self to him when your life's not about hallowing your name, but hallowing his. And then Jesus points to the birds of the air, right? Does this happen when you get older? You just start appreciating things that when you were younger you didn't? I've started to appreciate birds. I don't, it's weird. I don't even know why. Like I walk outside. I was holding Jenna the other day. And uh, we walked to the front yard, and all of a sudden, man, I just heard the birds. One of the reasons, honestly, that I heard the birds is I finally took those headphones out, right? Sometimes we're drowning the things of God out by some of our self-designed entertainment, just truth be told. I like what Martin Luther once said. um, Well, before I quote him, have you ever seen a bird pacing back and forth in worry or huddled up? Like, man, what are we going to do? Have you ever seen a bird plant a seed? What, what happens if you throw a seed out and a bird comes by? Does he start digging, plant it, pat his little foot there? You know what he does? He eats it right then. No discussion about it? Have you ever seen birds going down rows in a garden planting seeds, right? They're not. Martin Luther said, whenever you listen to a nightingale, therefore, you're listening to an excellent preacher. He exhorts you with this gospel, not with mere simple words, but with a living deed and an example. He sings all night, practically screams his lungs out. He's happier in the woods than cooped up in a cage where he has to be taken care of constantly. And where he rarely gets along well or even stays alive. It's as if he's saying, I prefer to be in the Lord's kitchen. He's made heaven and earth and he himself is the cook and the host. Every day he feeds and nourishes innumerable little birds out of his hand. For he does not have merely a bag full of grain, but heaven and earth. What are you trying to say? Don't be caged up. Christ has come to set you free. And then the lilies he mentions. What do birds and lilies of the field have in common? They're created by God. And what's God saying? Yes, I created them, but you're more valuable to me than them. So again, God doesn't say, if you trust in me, there will never be a drought. But that the one who trusts in me will never be on his or her own in the drought. You'll still be fruitful because your roots are planted in water. It's not uh, uninhabitable places. So in conclusion, let's draw near to the cross for just a moment. Don't you see a lot of anxious people at the cross? Pilate 
so powerful. I mean, he's the highest ranking government official of the mightiest empire on earth in Jerusalem at the time. The decision is his to make. But man, is he anxious. Got the people screaming at him. Got his own wife coming and saying, man, I had a dream about him. You need to think about this. Full of anxiety. Worldly power won't rescue you from anxiety. Peter's anxious, isn't he? Peter's anxious. He's by that charcoal fire. He's anxious because they keep asking him, don't you know him? Hey, I can tell by your accent. You're one of his followers. I don't even know him. And now anxious after denying Jesus that he's denied Jesus. The thief on the cross is anxious because he knows. And then he starts railing at the other thief. Man, we're getting what we deserve, but this man's done nothing wrong. Mary is anxious because of the suffering of Jesus, of course. But on the basis of what Jesus says to her, she's anxious. Who's going to take care of me? And then there's Jesus. The only one who truly abides by the Sermon on the Mount. He's the only one who really ever can live it out in perfection. And friends... That Jesus who hung on that cross in your place is the Jesus who's saying, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. So move from the greater to the lesser, meaning if he provides for you in that way, the greatest need you ever have is for your sins to be atoned for. He's done that. So if he's, if he's done that, you can trust him with the lesser things. And as a matter of fact, often what will happen is when you turn to him, what's really causing us anxiety is trying to live for things that don't really bring life to begin with, right? See, his kingdom is not an anxious kingdom. He says, here's his invitation, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you life final encouragement is uh, I thought about this in Jeremiah 17 where uh, the description is he will dwell in parched places in uninhabited salt land. Do you remember one of the statements that Jesus makes on the cross was this, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. It's a reminder to us Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will dwell in parched places. Jesus never turned from the Father. But in grace, he went to parched places in your place. Jesus went to the parched place of Calvary to redeem you. Remember the promise to the woman at the well? I offer living water. Whoever drinks of it will never be thirsty forever. Jeremiah 17, 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. The invitation is... uh,
time that we respond to the Lord, if you've never trusted, if you've never actually turned to the Lord in humility, in repentance, and in faith, the invitation is wide open for you to do that. I'm going to stand here for a few moments, and and if you've got a burden on your heart, you want to pray with somebody about it, it'd be my joy to to do so. Uh, In line with what we've talked about this morning, uh, I think it's an appropriate question to ask, where are your roots placed this morning? There's only one stream that's trustworthy and will sustain you no matter the extent of the drought, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So would you bow your heads with me? We'll pray together. And Father, on my own, I am so prone to anxiety, to fear, as it says here in Jeremiah 17. Blessed, blessed. He's the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name now, in this time of response and invitation, that you'd give us grace to be teachable, we'd be humble, we'd have ears to hear the truth. And we remember that, uh, oh, in John 4, one was made well the moment he believed the word of the Lord. And you could do that here. You could do that here again. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.